Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is John Arnold. For me, the leading journalist authority in English on all things CONCACAF. We've had some great guests lately, including Santiago Solari, Chris Richards, and Sarah Spain. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out. Now, here's my interview with John Arnold. Our guest now is an absolutely terrific writer based in Deep Ellum, Texas. John Arnold's work can be found in the Striker Texas website, the Getting Cockacaft newsletter, the BBC, and as of last week, a freelance story in the New York Times on the Cuban national team. John is the leading authority in English on all things CONCACAF, in my opinion, and you can find him on Twitter at Arnold, John, spelled out just like it sounds. John, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Grant. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, really busy week uh, in in your area of focus or one of your areas of focus. Huge week of World Cup qualifying in CONCACAF for everyone other than the top five ranked teams in the region. Everyone is fighting for eventually three open spots in the final round octagonal. I feel like the increased availability to watch these CONCACAF games on Paramount Plus and Peacock is raising their profile more than ever. And as always, there are some great stories in the region that you're on top of. But before we get to the stories, just from a pure results perspective, what do you think were some of the standout results takeaways from this past week and why? Yeah, I think it's difficult not to start with Canada. Okay, they only had to play Bermuda and the Cayman Islands, but they still can only beat the teams that are in front of them. They emphatically and absolutely beat them, beating Bermuda 5-1, Cayman Islands 11-0. We're at the round of qualification where, you know, one really, truly superlative player can make a difference, right? Typically, that's not the case in the sport we cover. You need more than just one player to to go up against 11 guys. But right now, you roll Afonso Davies out there and teams are going to have a lot of trouble stopping him. So I I think that's a standout. And Canada has a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Curacao, very good start. Uh, They were able to kind of get their... Their, uh, their campaign going with a 5-0 victory over St. Vincent and the Grenadines had a little bit of trouble against Cuba, but I think a lot of that was the kind of traveling to a neutral site, COVID testing, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an odd environment. And uh, I think Goose Hiddink, who, yes, is the manager of Curacao right now, will kind of benefit from maybe having more of a challenge, especially when they have Guatemala on the final day in, in June. Some surprises, uh, Montserrat found a late equalizer and drew El Salvador. I have kind of been enjoying this fake rivalry that I am only the only one creating, <laughs> but they've played each other now four times in the past three or four years. They played in Nations League qualification, they played in Nations League, and now they've played in World Cup qualification. This is the first time Montserrat gets a point. Uh, so El Salvador, a team that I think was feeling pretty frustrated that they were not included in that FIFA ranking cutoff for the the teams that you mentioned, Grant, the teams that'll engine in, that'll that'll start in September, uh, they didn't really put their money where their mouth was, right? You, you can't draw Montserrat and then say that you're one of the biggest teams in the region as good as Montserrat has been and as fun of a story as they are. So uh, that was a big surprise. And the other surprise is in uh, Group F, where St. Kitts and Nevis 
are leading the group, a group that includes Trinidad and Tobago and Guyana, who I thought was going to be the surprise package. They got walloped by Trinidad and Tobago, so what do I know? What I do know is that St. Kitts and Nevis, they're on six points. They got some tough games in June, but those are kind of the standout top-line uh, takeaways when you look at just the, the games that were happening uh, over the past week. You know, I think folks in the U.S. have sort of assumed when they saw the schedule for the Oct- is, is octagonal the right word to use? What are you using? I think so. I guess we could say like enter the octagon, but that that's already been taken by a different <laughs> sport. So I, I guess we'll say octagonal. <laughs> so I think a lot of U.S. fans sort of assume that that first game in World Cup qualifying for the U.S. in September is going to be at Trinidad. Are you so certain? No. No, I, I I really thought they were going to get upset in their first game against Guyana. And to their credit, they didn't. They, they took care of business. They have one of those kind of superlative players in Levi Garcia who plays in the Greek league. I think he's going to be someone who you're going to see move up to an even bigger league in the next year, two years. I definitely have heard some, some interesting rumblings that he could be on a trajectory that looks similar to some of the other kind of CONCACAF standouts that we've seen in the past. But... That said, you look at some of the the recent results from Trinidad and Tobago, they're not pretty. That Guiana win was their first win in something like two years, except for a win over Anguilla, the worst ranked team in CONCACAF, the second worst ranked team in the world, and a game that they pretty much scheduled for the sole reason of being able to beat the crud out of them and then say, look, we won, we're not as bad as our recent results show. So there's a lot of, you know, they're, they're dealing with a lot of different things, especially on an organizational level. There was a big controversy basically all of last year where FIFA wanted to put in a normalization committee, but the elected, the officials who had been elected to head the FA said there's no reason to do that. We are legitimately elected. FIFA's normalization committee has won out, but they're still kind of trying to work through all of those different things. Then you had the manager, Terry Fenwick. Uh, get into a bit of an altercation with his press officer, which they've kind of downplayed and said everyone's happy, but like the preparation for these games was not good. If they can't get things going kind of in the right direction, well, if they don't have any time, like you have to do it by June. And and truly, I, I would be a little surprised if St. Kitts and Nevis run the table, but right now, mathematically, if they do that, they're in. So it, it's entirely possible that you see a team other than Trinidad and Tobago and that, that draw that Trinidad and Tobago had with Puerto Rico, with Dave Sarachan's Puerto Rico, uh, also opens the door for Guyana, who again, disappointing against Trinidad and Tobago, got beaten by the Soccer Warriors. They're back in the mix as well because they took care of business in their second game. And now mathematically, they could still top the group. And then if you top the group, you then have to play a playoff against another group topping team. So I, I, I certainly wouldn't pencil in or even... Uh, you know, pen in or whatever ink you want to use. I wouldn't put Trinidad and Tobago in there uh, in September. They're really going to have to prove it on the field because there's a lot of questions to be answered. So I want to ask you about a, a few specific intriguing stories in the region. One is a guy you mentioned already, the legendary Gus Hiddink, uh, former coach of a lot of amazing teams, including the Netherlands taking them to the World Cup semis in 1998, took South Korea to the World Cup semis in 2002. Uh, I happened to spend a month doing TV with him nightly in 2018 during the World Cup and, and found him to be a wonderful man with a sense of humor that I didn't totally know was there uh, beforehand. Uh, I love Gus Hiddink. Um, how did he end up coaching Curacao 
And, and how do you think this is going to go? How did he end up is fascinating, and I, I don't want to kind of dwell on it, but there was a guy there named Remco Bicentini who had already started to get Curacao, and, and before Platic Cliver, but Bicentini was kind of Clivert's assistant, trusted hand, and when Clivert went back to European football, Bicentini is the guy who really kind of took charge. Another kind of charming guy with a great sense of humor, always wore a suit on the sideline, which I love to see, uh, a big smile. So, you know, he apparently had asked Hiddink for some sort of mentorship and advice, and somehow, some way, some lines got crossed, and the Curacao Federation was like, cool, we're hiring Hiddink. So Vicentini <laughs> felt frustrated. He's doing some work now with the Canada uh, national team, actually. So hopefully we'll wow. see more of him in the future. But how it all happened and the connection is a little... Hidden came out and said, if I had known that I was going to basically come in and, and Remco gets the boot, I wouldn't have done it. I want to make sure everything is right. Mm -hmm. the, the case got settled in court. It was ugly. That's kind of the summary of kind of what you need to right. know. So I think it's a project where, of course, if someone comes into you and says, hey, we've got this idea, we want to take this tiny island, it's absolutely beautiful, life here is paradise, and we want to take it to the World Cup. And by the way, you're going to have the resources of not only our federation, but you're also going to be able to draw on a really rich base of players, most of whom play in the Netherlands, who not only can represent this national team, but want to represent this national team. And it means a lot to them. And they already have examples like Eloy Room, like Leandro Bacuna, like Cuco Martina, who are already actively representing the team. So I think when you look at what Hiddink can do, he, he certainly can recruit, right? There's still guys out there. Tahith Chong, who's a Manchester United player currently on loan in Belgium. Uh, Lokaida from Cincinnati. You know, uh, the Timber Brothers who maybe are still in the picture for the Netherlands, but, you know, there's a lot of different guys who are eligible for Curaçao. And you have to think, if they're able to get into that octagonal, it might be pretty tempting to be able to show up, win a couple games, or even just play big games against the U.S. and Mexico and Costa Rica and miss the World Cup, or maybe you make it, right? And if you're a young player, if you're 21 and you're trying to get in the Netherlands set up and break through, and then you have this other pathway where you can go hang out in the, in, on a beautiful island and now and then try and qualify for the World Cup, it, it has to be pretty intriguing. That said, even if they don't recruit any new players, which I think they will, they already have a really good base. They've got some experience, like I mentioned, Martina, Bakuna, Elson Hui, guys who are used to kind of crossing the Atlantic and playing these games. And with Hiddink and his tactical acumen, as good as Rimko Bicentini was, I think like the, the fact that Hiddink, like you said, you know how good he was with, with his past international teams, it's difficult to bet against them. They have a tough game, I think, against Guatemala that will, that will decide the group. But I certainly expect to see them, at least in that face-off game where the, the last three teams are going to be decided. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them playing the U.S., playing Mexico, playing Costa Rica. You mentioned Tiny Montserrat got a World Cup qualifying point against El Salvador. Montserrat has an incredible backstory in terms of a, a movie was made about their team once uh, playing, I think it was the, the two lowest ranked teams in the FIFA World Rankings. Volcano blasts and populations moving away. And here they are getting a point against El Salvador. What can you tell us about Montserrat and their story? Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable that a country that's now half uninhabitable because of a volcano erupting is able to hang with a team like El Salvador, right? So 
they're a team that, that they've really made the most of recruitment um, and finding players who are eligible. And again, like I, I, I went I went to Curacao in 2019 and I, I wanted to report on a story to kind of understand what these dual nationals felt. Right. Obviously, you know, Grant, we've talked for years in the U.S. about, oh, the German-Americans and some of the other guys that are eligible. And I thought, OK, if you're Curacao, if you're Montserrat, like we're talking about it kind of feels like these guys are just mercenaries, right? Like, oh, you just pick up anybody you can. You say, hey, it's going to be fun. Like, you can make the World Cup, and then they're there. But, but talking to some of the Curacao players and hopefully having the chance this cycle to talk to some Montserrat players and some Jamaica players, as maybe we'll get to, hearing them and the passion and the, the desire and how much it meant to them really changed my personal perspective. So whatever people want to say, you know, they can say it. But I think, like, the guys from Montserrat, almost all English-born, but really want to make a difference for this island that hasn't had a lot of great news. I mean, legitimately, it's tough to live there. And I don't mean like, I mean, it's literally tough to live there because of, of the volcano and everything that, that went on and, and the population mostly picking up and moving and a lot of them ending up in England. So Montserrat still means a lot to a lot of those guys. You can see it um, when they play. The New Jerseys are really cool, so that's that's a plus. I'll be writing about that actually on the newsletter. That kind of the new Concacaf fashions that we're seeing, which is exciting. But they have players like Lyle Taylor, who scored the goals, uh, actually all three goals from Montserrat in their their two games this this month. I mean, he plays in Nottingham Forest, not at you know not playing for some League Seven or whatever club. So, you know, these are guys who who are footballers and despite the fact that it would be much easier, especially in the COVID-19 pandemic, to stay home and, and train with your team and try and, you know, take some rest. It means a lot to them to cross over and play for these games. So Montserrat, it's a great story, and, and they're not going to qualify from this round, but, you know, you're talking about a movie was made about how bad they were at soccer, and now they're a team that is in League B, maybe League A contention in Nations League. You know, they, they could be a team that, that you're seeing more of in the future. So it's a really, really fascinating story. Yeah, I mean, this topic of dual nationals, you know, it's it's such a common thing. And obviously not just with the U.S., with a lot of these countries, especially in the Caribbean. And Jamaica is, I know they didn't play any qualifiers. They're through to the final round. The U.S. just played them in a friendly and this roster that Jamaica had for the U.S. game had, you know, didn't have any giant names, but I'm hearing all sorts of possibilities about potential, na- like big names committing to Jamaica for World Cup qualifying, like Mikhail Antonio from West Ham mm-hmm. is one of those names that's come up. Obviously, they already have Leon Bailey, who's had sort of his own checkered relations with the Jamaican Federation over the years. What what's going on there with that story? What are the chances that you know you might you, we might see some big names joining Jamaica for the octagonal? I think it's entirely possible. You look at the leadership currently with both the Federation and the the national team specifically led by the Theo Whitmore, Tapa Whitmore. You know, he was part of that nineteen ninety eight team where Jamaica sort of I don't want to say pioneered, but they were one of the first teams to to bring in recruitments. They called it UB40 because it's, you know, reggae that originated in, in England. Uh, so those guys are called the UB40s. And, and you know, Tapa was part of that team that, that made the World Cup. So I think he's a guy who says, well, why wouldn't we do this? And the Federation is kind of, I would say, finally, because it's been something that's a topic of discussion for a long, long time in, in Jamaican football, has kind of finally come through. 
it can't come necessarily at the expense of your local base players who need to be developed because if you if you make the World Cup once and then you have no local players after that, it's not going to be a very successful national team program. But then also you have guys like Andre Blake, Kamar Taxi Lawrence, you know, these guys who are really, really good and have been the base of the Jamaican team that made two consecutive Gold Cup finals and has made some noise a different, you know, CONCACAF and, and sometimes international tournaments. And it's like, well, you shouldn't just throw them by the side. And also you still need a left back. You still need a goalkeeper, right? So those guys are in a bit of a, or not a bit, they're in a, a, an outright dispute with the Federation about match fees, about appearance fees, bonuses for winning and losing. This stuff can sound kind of crass, but it's it's standard procedure for national teams. And it happens a lot that there are disagreements between the players and the Federation. If the JFF can find a way to get those guys back smiling, happy to play for Jamaica again, and bring in even three or four of the recruits that they're talking about bringing in, they're a much better team. They're, they're a much, much more dangerous team. And I think they put themselves in competition for at least the playoff spot in CONCACAF when you're talking about the World Cup uh, qualification slots. So you never know with kind of what's going to happen, the dynamics between federation and players and all those sorts of things. But if you just look at who could represent Jamaica, what could that 11 look like or what could the 23-man squad they call in look like? It's a dangerous team, but it should be, right? I think like one of the themes that we're kind of talking around in a way, I'm not not saying you and I, Grant, but like in CONCACAF is like, like, you know, the U.S. missing out on qualification against Honduras. Honduras is good. Jamaica in World Cup qualification. Jamaica's going to be good. Curacao is going to be good. And it should be. It shouldn't be easy for the U.S. or for Mexico or for Costa Rica or for whoever to qualify for the World Cup, to go to the Olympics, to win the Gold Cup, to win Nations League. This should be difficult. That's how it is in other confederations. And I think you see CONCACAF through some through recruitment, some through the Nations League. And they're kind of, whether you buy it or not, their idea of being a football focused, you know, sport first organization after years and years and years of being a, let's face it, dollars focused organization. I think you're starting to see those factors come together and see a stronger region, which benefits everyone. But it also means you're going to lose some games in World Cup qualification. And that's how it goes, right? Brazil loses them. Argentina loses them. Ghana loses them. England loses them. I think we're kind of finally seeing CONCACAF become a confederation where there are a lot of teams that can compete. Here's a random question for you. So I really enjoyed on Paramount Plus watching qualifiers from all over CONCACAF last week. And I've been to a few of these places over the years, but certainly not all of them. And um, for me, like having been cooped up for a year, as so many, uh, as everyone has been uh, during the virus and not traveling, like it was so awesome just to be able to click to different places and feel like I was in a, in a, in a different far flung location. Cause some of these, uh, it's just, these games, it's very cool to sort of see what the stadium looks like. You can see what the neighborhood around the stadium looks like. One other thing I noticed, though, at least with a lot of these Caribbean locations, realizing that there were some neutral site games, that there were a lot of field turf fields. And I'm wondering from your perspective, because I, I don't I just started watching from some of these places. Is that new and is sort of the age-old concern about quality of fields in CONCACAF and bumpy grass fields that were really hard to play on, is that less of a thing now? 
I think so. I think that you're seeing like one of the, I, I know that like Nations League, like US fans, Mexico fans, I think there's like an idea of like, ah, who needs it? But the answer of who needs it is all these other teams because you, you force them into being serious. You force them into starting projects because previously you could turn up every four years and say, ah, we lost whatever World Cup qualification dream is over. We're never going to make it anyway. We'll see in four years. Now you have to play every single year. And so I think a lot of federations who already had some of that funding are saying, yeah, we need to invest in these facilities, right? Or we need to find a place to play where we can make it work that's not a cricket ground or, you know, whatever we're converting into a stadium. So we'll still see some weird ones. We'll still see some terrible pitches. But I do think, like, I I feel like Nations League is the key for a lot of federations and like people who have wanted their country to be great at football for a long time and haven't gotten the resources or haven't been put in the position of power because of bureaucracy or politics or whatever they're starting to win out and that's good like i i do think we're gonna see the facilities are gonna be better that like like i'm saying like the jerseys are gonna look cooler and more professional the refereeing might improve like i do think it's a new era in Concacaf. How did you get so interested in this? It's kind of funny because, I mean, I grew up, I always had a, a desire to know more about Mexico. And I lived there and, and, and learned Spanish. And, you know, that's that's something that I love and, and still cherish. And obviously will always love Mexico my entire life. When I tried to start becoming a soccer writer or a writer, period, a journalist, I was just so intrigued by soccer because of the, you know, I think you'll agree, Grant, that like there's no other sport where you're doing as much non-sports things, right? The politics Mm -hmm. play into this so much. There's so many other things we can talk about. Like we're talking about Curacao and Jamaica, but we're really getting at themes of national identity. Right. In these Caribbean nations, you're talking about actually covering some politics, right? The sport minister won't let the team do X, Y, Z, right? I love that. that. That intrigues me. I love, I love the world. I love how countries interact. I love how people interact. I love learning about new cultures. So that, that, that's what drew me to soccer specifically. That said, I wanted to be another U.S. national team. I wanted to be Grant or Ivis or, or Doug McIntyre. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And then I started to watch these games that the U.S. was playing. And I, you know, because of speaking Spanish and having friends from different countries, I, I knew like a little bit about some of the teams and you'd watch the broadcast and with all love to a lot of our great broadcaster friends, like sometimes you'd watch a game U.S. against Costa Rica is the example I always give and it would be like, all right, U.S. has to watch out for Alvaro Sabarillo, which was true, but he wasn't the best player on those Costa Rican teams, right? You're talking about a team with like Brian Oviedo and Brian Ruiz and like these guys who were really, really top players at the time. And they weren't getting mentioned. Why? Because they weren't in MLS, because people weren't, 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 didn't have the information or didn't have the resources or, or weren't curious enough to find some of these, these, these keys, right? The key players. And then, you know, that, that's where it started. I wanted to sort of not write that wrong, because it's not a wrong, but I just wanted to fill in some of the gaps, partly for my own curiosity, right? And that, that digs, that gets you going deeper and deeper. And I'm really, really pleased because right now I think a lot of people, and again, like the broadcasters, I think are doing a nice job and, and people are doing a great job looking more for those stories and finding those stories. But I just always thought it was very strange that, you know, when I'm reading the Mexican press or even the Panamanian press or the Salvadoran press, they can tell you this is going to be the U.S.'s 11. Here are the doubts that they have. Left back's always a weakness. You know, this player might come in for this player if he's injured. And then you'd go to the U.S. side and there was not many people who were doing that. 
whether it was because of editors saying we don't care or because they didn't know, whatever the reason was that wasn't happening. And I just always wanted to do that. And luckily, um, I've been able to in the past couple of years. It's been, it's been interesting to watch people get more and more into CONCACAF. I do want to get a little more into your personal path a little bit later on, but my last CONCACAF question, I guess, would be a pretty straightforward one. If you had to take a guess and pick the three CONCACAF teams that you see joining the five we know of already in the octagonal, who would it be? I, I, I can't pick against Canada. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put them in for sure. This is me also pulling up and making sure I have the uh, the playoffs correct because they already have the playoff seeds of who's going to play who after these groups, but I've been so focused on round one, I'm not 100% on them. Canada gets through. I think Curaçao gets through. And I think that leaves me with group F and group A. That one's a real toss-up. <laughs> I, I, I think maybe El Salvador does it. I think maybe they huh. sneak in, even though they drew Montserrat, even though they are probably not as strong as, as maybe they even should be. You know, some of the new recruits from the U23 tournament that El Salvador brought in, I think will be helpful at the senior level sooner rather than later. So mm-hmm. I'll go with that. If it, makes, if, it, if it doesn't work and I've done my uh, crosses wrong, then everyone can write in to, to you, Grant, and then you can pass that feedback on to me. <laughs> I think you got the crosses right. I put you on the spot and you succeeded. So nice work there, John. Um, I guess I do have one more CONCACAF question, but it's about Olympic qualifying and the U.S. going out again, third straight time, not qualifying for the Olympics on the men's side to a Honduras team that is now qualified for four straight Olympics. Is it safe to assume you weren't necessarily surprised by that? Well, yes and no. I I thought that the U.S. and Mexico would go through because I really thought they were the strongest team. This Honduras squad, look, like we all saw the semifinal. If you watched last night in the final, they gave Mexico a really, really good game, really fun to watch. Some of the guys from that team are on, like, the Olympia team that made the CONCACAF Champions League semifinals. And I think, like, look, I don't think I'm alone in American soccer circles in saying, hey, you got to watch out for Honduras. Like, I do think, you know, there were, there were some kind of narratives that popped up of like, oh, Americans always overlooking Honduras. And like, I'm not sure that's true anymore. I think that people are in some, maybe there are some, but like, I think that, that most people are familiar enough with how good Honduras can be and how uh, fluky at times, I guess, the U.S. can be in World Cup qualification or, or how much they can suffer. Like, that, that I don't think it was a huge surprise to a lot of people. I, I was a little surprised because I found this Honduras team to be a little less stacked than previous incarnations. I think that they don't have as many players who are going to be regulars on that senior national team as they did four years ago, as they did eight years ago. So I really did think this was an opportunity for the U.S., even though they didn't have the core of players that people keep mentioning, to qualify for the Olympics and, and, and to kind of end that streak and get past Honduras. But I don't think anybody can be surprised at Honduras in the Olympics at this point. Yeah, like you said, four straight, five of the last six. It's kind of their calling card at this point. Let's take a quick break from our interview with John Arnold, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z. 
and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligue 1, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like Be In Sports in English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. I want to move into a, a different topic a little bit. Um, not so much, well, we'll get to it in one second here. I want to ask you about your newsletter. So it's called Getting CONCACAFed. I'm wondering, how do you approach it? How do people subscribe? Yeah, I always say if you get the joke in the name, the newsletter's for you. I started it because I left Goal, where I was working as a correspondent, and had nowhere to write about soccer because of the pandemic. And I was doing a lot of local news and, and marketing writing and all sorts of different things, and I didn't have an opportunity or a space to kind of tell some of those stories. But even when I did work at, at a major media outlet, you know, some of the stories that I would pitch would get turned down pretty quickly, and that's fine and somewhat understandable, but I, I believe and continue to believe that this is a space where I can tell those stories and dig in. You know, there are some kind of columns about, oh, you know, like LAFC fell short against Tigres in the CONCACAF Champions League, you know, how did that happen? But like, uh, mostly I focus on reported stories from the region. I try and come out two times a week. As you know, reporting stories, sometimes people don't talk to you or stories don't come together. So it's about once or twice a week, basically. People can go to getconcacaf.substack.com or just click a link from my Twitter. It's probably easier. You just put your email in there and then it just sends you every single one automatically. It couldn't be easier. Uh, could be easier to find. That's on me. I'll probably fix that one day. But uh, I, I just really think that like these are stories that need to be told. You know, I did a deep dive on Anguilla. Like, how does it feel to beat the absolute worst team in CONCACAF and the second worst team in the world? And what do you do to change that, right? Uh, I talked to a couple of Mexico fans who formed a fan national team that played the Haiti U23s before the, the Olympic tournament as preparation. An official friendly in Port-au-Prince where uh, about a week later, the Belizean national team got stuck at gunpoint with their bus. These Mexico fans are just chilling and, and playing a friendly. That's, it's, it, those stories are wild to me. And those are the kind of stories where like sometimes they do slip below, between the cracks. And it's just like, no, nah, we need to tell those stories. And I think that people have been into it. The response has been really uh, gratifying and edifying. And, and, uh, and that, that's kind of the drive of the newsletter. So um, reported stories about the weird and the wild, but also just the the top line, kind of what you would expect to see, I guess, from a publication if CONCACAF was the most important thing in the world. That's kind of how I treat it. I would hope that the people who run CONCACAF love everything you do because it's it's what they've always wanted in terms of storytelling about the region. But I do have one question, because I've never asked anyone at CONCACAF this. How do they respond to the term CONCACAF? I don't know. I <laughs> also 
<laughs> like, I, I don't think they're going to come and sue me, but I do have, like, you know, the occasional nightmare that, like, I guess I would just change the name if I got a cease and desist, like, and it would be fine. But I do wonder kind of, like, how that's received, you know, and I, I have good relationships <laughs> with people in the office, and I assume, like, if there was an issue, they'd probably, like, give me a little heads up. I, I think that, like, how they actually see it, I'm not 100% sure. I think that CONCACAF could do a better job embracing some of the quirks that it has right Mm -hmm. there's tropes that they don't want to capitalize on and for obvious reasons right refereeing is bad okay you don't want to put that out on your website uh the fields are bad you don't want to put that out right but like there are just things in this region that happen that don't happen anywhere else and i think that that's a good thing especially in this era where everything seems to be so samey right everything seems to be like you know there's there's so little kind of diversity in so many different fields whether it's sport or design or whatever and i just think like concacaf is fun and it's fun because because of these weird things that happen and the more that the confederation puts its arms around that and says like yeah what you see mls teams do it right like where like they they put memes on twitter and like they're fun and and weird and like maybe it's not for everyone but like i think people respond to that and if concacaf were a little more open to just how wacky things can be, I think they would benefit for it. Embrace the chaos is always something I say about MLS. And and I think CONCACAF could, could certainly do that and maybe have more to embrace. Um, you've also started a website recently called The Striker Texas with some other really good people down in the state of Texas. What's going on with that right now? Yeah, well, we're looking forward to the start of the season. We started uh, this project that's covering Texas soccer in in every aspect that you can think of. I'm taking care of the Dallas MLS stuff. We've got Chris Bills in Austin, Victor Rise in Houston. But we also have a great team of uh, writers and freelancers that are doing Houston Dash and other women's soccer coverage, which is so, so enormous here in Texas. University like UT, UTEP, Texas Tech, my alma mater, uh, that's getting covered as well, although the college season has been difficult with some of the, the schedule changes. USL Championship, USL League One, you know, and even down to the youth level, um, because Texas, I I guess the project was started with this mentality that people in Texas know that Texas is a soccer state, right? Yeah, sure, American football is always going to be the most popular sport here, but there are still so many people here that care about about football uh, in in the sense that we talk about it, soccer, that, that... we need great media outlets. I freelanced with the Dallas Morning News while I was working at Goal and was their FC Dallas beat writer. And I, I loved that relationship. I loved that challenge. But, you know, there are times where I'd pitch a story and they said, this is great, but we don't have space like in our physical print edition. Or they said, this is great. And it's 500 words. And I had to spend, you know, 20 words explaining what a right back is and 20 words explaining what North Texas SC is. And then like your Brian Reynolds profile doesn't end up turning out to be too charismatic. You don't get much about the guy, right? And this is a guy who obviously then goes over to Roma and everyone in the world wants to know about him, right? So we're looking to fill some of those gaps and and, and dig into some of, some of that chaos and weirdness that we talked about in CONCACAF and in MLS. It happens in Texas too, and, and we're kind of hoping to be a nimble, modern, fun uh, outlet that really has everything in the state covered. So we're just looking forward to the season starting. We launched and told some cool stories, features, and now it's uh, we're looking forward to the game coverage. It's gonna be it's gonna be nice whenever that gets launched, and we have more. You know, the teams are so secretive during preseason. It's gonna be nice when we can right. see what's happening. <laughs> yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing Austin start in MLS, uh, new stadium. 
uh, team put together by Claudio Reyna, coached by Josh Wolf. Um, and you mentioned some of the young players like Brian Reynolds that have come out of Texas recently. And a lot of this has to do with FC Dallas and, and what they've done, especially when it comes to developing young talent. But if you're trying to explain to someone why so much young talent is coming out of Texas right now and we're in being sold to Europe and, and shoot, we can include Weston McKenney, Chris Richards, all those guys more like, is there more to it than just FC Dallas doing a really good job? I think so. I think that the youth coaching in the state is really good. Um, and a lot of that comes from the Latino influence and sort of a welcoming of that. You look at how much kind of cross-border collaboration there is with Monterrey and Tigres, you know, the two big teams in Monterrey. With Santos, they have a couple academies here in Dallas that, that look for great young players. And even into like some of the West Texas areas, South Texas, you know, I, I think there really are people who are really talented when it comes to youth development that don't just reside in the FC Dallas Academy. You know, they've done a really good job and, they, and they've kind of hit on those things that I'm mentioning, you know, an embrace of the Latino player, an understanding of the, the modern Mexican-American or Salvadoran-American and the, their experience and what the challenges are and how to turn that player into a great professional, but also, you know, great coaching and, and sort of fostering that environment. They've done a really good job, but I think you find that in a lot of portions of the state. The question, I think, for a lot of people is, well, why haven't the Dynamo done that, right? Or, or some of the USL championship teams, San Antonio FC, with a couple really, really talented teenage prospects, you know. I think it'll come, right? They've got Tab Ramos leading that, that project and then Austin FC now seems like they're doing everything right the proof will be in the taste of the pudding like whenever they actually get on the field and whatever that senior team looks like but uh you know they hired a, a spanish uh person to head their academy who was basically building the qatar uh youth mm. system for the past three four or five years Juan Delgado. so um you know there, there's a lot of smart people that are involved with youth development here in texas and i think that it shows in the products just wanted to wrap up by asking you, I'm trying to figure some of this stuff out myself right now about the soccer media landscape these days. How are you seeing things right now and, and maybe where we're headed? Yeah, I th it's tough because I think so often the kind of response is like, just subscribe and support. And like, we do need that, right? We need people to sign up for my newsletter for me to keep doing it. It doesn't even have a paid component yet, but like maybe it will one day. I don't know. Um, we need people to show that the audience is there, but I'm also encouraged. I think like the audience really does seem to be there, right? Like for a long time, it, maybe we were saying that and it wasn't quite as true as we wanted it to be. And now I think you really have a casual soccer fan in this country, like a lot of casual soccer fans in the country. And I think that's what drives coverage, right? The NFL announces yesterday, oh, we're going to a 17-game season. I'm not like a super NFL fan. I like it. But I clicked the article because I'm a casual fan of it, right? I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Soccer, I don't think, has been there. And, and I think it is getting there where we're getting those casual fans. And the other changes that we're getting editors and people in positions of power who do kind of care. But also we're seeing like we might have to launch a newsletter for this or we might have to launch a media outlet in the case of the striker texas for these stories to find a space and if people support it then it'll work right uh i don't know it, it's i certainly don't have all the answers i have a lot of thoughts and a lot of things that i'm trying to balance and and i'm you know quite frankly like i'm also just trying to make it like you know last year like i mentioned i did a lot of stuff that wasn't soccer 
and wasn't even journalism. And I'm like, oh, maybe this is the path. But I hope that people find their days better, remember stories, and kind of know more about what they like with the ability to write about soccer and or about CONCACAF and that kind of thing. So I think like it's a tough it's a tough landscape and I think like it has to go somewhat beyond just like, hey, support us, read our stuff, click articles, because the change does have to come from somewhere that's not simply fans on Twitter. But I do think things are potentially going in the right direction. Well, I'm a huge fan of you and your work. I did a total fist pump last week seeing your byline in the New York Times with a terrific story on the Cuban national team and some of the players from outside Cuba uh, with Cuban roots who have been welcomed to that team. People should check out that article as well. John Arnold, his work can be found in the Striker Texas website, the Getting CONCACAF newsletter, the BBC, as mentioned in the New York Times. You can find him on Twitter at Arnold, John, spelled out just like it sounds. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank John Arnold as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.